0: Hey everyone, welcome to episode two of the Lonely Mountain Mystics podcast. Last episode, we talked a little bit about what led us to start the podcast, as well as a little bit about mysticism and the freedom that it's afforded us. This episode, we'll be talking about the limits of language. Words are impactful and we all agree that it's important that things mean things, but we also have to concede that they're just not perfect. Where and how language fails us will be our focus today. Before we get started, I have just a few things to sort of draw your attention to. First, we would love for you to check out the website, LonelyMountainMystics.com. There you'll find ways to reach out to us, there's a blog, there's the show notes, they're there as well. You'll also find a link to our Patreon page, where you can financially support the work that we do. There are several different tiers of support, with the first starting at just $1 a month. They all come with some thank you perks, just little extras, things like bonus content. Finally, if you enjoy the podcast, leaving a review is also a great way to show your support and helps others discover us as well. All right, let's talk about language. I guess I
1: want to start off talking about how language is limiting or what our experience with that has been. When I was doing research for the language conversation, I came across a study that my wife did whenever she was getting her master's in dance movement therapy and mental health counseling about the connectedness of how we carry, feel, and experience trauma. And when you look at what's really cool about it is whenever they were doing some studies over listening to people talk about their trauma narrative, as they got to the climax of their trauma story, the speech centers in their brain shut off and the sensory centers in their brain lit up, where they were no longer really able to describe it in words, but they were actually, in their mind, completely reliving the situation. And so the language just fails us. So when I was doing research, I kept coming back to studies like that, just things along those lines about how we put so much emphasis on language, yet in the cases where we need it most, generally speaking, it can really fail us.
2: That's super interesting. I have experienced sometimes in my life where I literally have a hard time speaking, I like making words. and it's mostly when I'm in a like a triggered space. And I've experienced that with with other people that I love as well. So yeah, I, just to say, like, that's absolutely a real thing. And we know that through, Scientific observation, we know that through experience that sooner or later when we get to a place of traumatic pain, language is not going to be what helps us build that bridge to connecting to ourselves and connecting to one another. I think it can be helpful in storytelling afterwards because our brains are meaning making machines. So whether or not we try, we'll probably use words afterwards to describe it. To feel connected to each other to feel less alone but yeah it has severe limits and that's where i feel like i don't know if this is where you're going but i feel like that's where it has to be held really loosely like first of all what do you mean by the words you're saying this you could say the same words i'm saying and they can mean different things for you so for us to hold Language in a more generous and in a more curious way and be less concerned about saying the right words because that's Maybe not a thing (laughs) So I think you touched on something interesting that is when we
0: understand that there are inherently limits to language There are a couple things we can actually do with the knowledge of those limits if you're describing something to me I Can know that the picture that I'm creating in my mind is probably different Than what you're saying But knowing that I can Apply what you're saying to my own picture Is is one way I can use it But then I can also turn around And ask you questions To try to learn more about your picture Mm -hmm. Knowing that it's different from my picture Yeah, Yeah, and that'll just Mm -hmm. That'll help me create a richer picture myself
3: I feel like we never really arrive at the exact meaning of words, the exact meaning of an idea through the usage of words. We just always approximate it. Like we always get, we can get closer, but we can't get, we can't be exactly there. I'm not sure that at any point I have actually described something to someone and really had them understand that idea that I was talking about unless they also had a shared experience of what I was talking about. Like, I think that that experience helped fill in the gaps with the words that I was trying to use. For whatever reason, I'm thinking of this quote from uh, C.S. Lewis. He talks about in, I think, maybe the book of, like, The Four Loves, where he talks about friendship is born out of the experience of saying, oh, me too. I thought I was the only one. And that, like, experience, as you're making a connection with somebody, you're describing something and... The only reason that they know exactly what you're talking about is because they've also done the same thing, or they've been in a similar place. But even at that point, like that experience is still different. Like you're experiencing similar things, but I feel like the transmission of ideas is totally unique to the person that is transmitting them, if that makes sense. Like there's a whole universe that we're thinking of, and there's no way that we're gonna spit that out and get everybody to understand. And even the moment of saying, oh, I thought I was the only one and making that connection with somebody else is still just getting closer to your own, to your own little galaxy. But it's not the full thing. So I just think it's interesting that the primary method that we use to communicate to one another isn't even that accurate. Right,
0: because words, like all language ever does is
3: reference experience.
0: That's all it can do, right?
3: Yeah. Yeah. You can't describe a tree to somebody who's never experienced a tree before. Well, you can try to, but they're probably not going to get the idea of the tree.
0: Like, I can describe a tree to someone, uh, or I can just use the word tree, and if they've experienced the tree, then they know what a tree is. And if they haven't, then... Assuming they know what leaves are or what bark is, the more they know about the individual components that make up a tree, they could approximate maybe even pretty well what a tree would be. But without experiencing any of those things, then they can't even approximate. So, yeah, words are just merely referencing experience. And if we don't have the experience, then we'd, the words mean nothing.
1: That's just super profound. I mean, I know whenever we talked about asymptotic utility, and that's not the right term, but I like it better because I feel like it describes the what asymptotic fidelity is trying to describe in a better way, but it's just, it's words modifying more words, which kind of proves the point. But Will, you explain that a lot better than I do, so...
3: So, yeah, asymptotic fidelity, which is totally stealing from Mike McCarg at Science Mike. So, he talks about how. It, so, anybody that knows math is going to listen to this and laugh at this. But, so in math, you have an asymptote, which is a function that eternally approaches a line, like a fixed line in space, and it will forever get closer to that line and never touch it. And it's kind of like, uh, well, like in the first Ant Man film when he just gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And smaller. There's just always more, (laughs) like there's always more to the world that we don't know. There's always more to the message that we're not understanding, and the more words we pile on it, we might get a little closer, we might unlock something that wasn't there before, but we're still not there. To go a little churchy on this, I think it's really interesting that the Bible is, compared to the books written about it, is pretty short. (laughs) Like, N.T. Wright has written three Bibles' worth of information about the New Testament. <laughs> and I remember one time I got in an argument with a friend who was like, well, why don't you just read the Bible and get all the ideas from that? <laughs> and I was like, well, maybe, but, like, that's keeping everything just kind of at a very... I don't want to say surface level, because I feel like that kind of cheats, you know, the messages in, in, that, in the book, but there's more to learn than just what's there. Like that points to a world and a place and time that you have to learn about that in order to understand the message. And then all of a sudden, there's pre-modern worldviews that you have to learn about. And then you have to learn about other cultures that didn't even have a hand in writing the Bible in order to really understand what some of those authors are meaning when they say a seemingly, you know, inane phrase to us. There's just always more. It's kind of like how I feel about language it's never complete. So, I feel like
2: that gives us a really good basis for not being very attached to particular language or overly dogmatic about right answers. On the flip side, for each of you, what is was it what is it about language that keeps Drawing you in like I spend so much time listening to people talk so there's still something about it despite the fact that It's not enough despite the fact that it has so many limits. There is something about it for me hearing Stories you trying to use words to capture experiences still is Like you would think if it's not working that well we would just stop, right? (laughs) But it's almost like we do it more. Think about memory for a second. Let's imagine that I could actually say what I meant and you could actually understand it. But tomorrow, are you going to remember it? Like Books that have profoundly changed my life I have to go back and look at them and be like, I don't remember most of this. It shifted something in me. I became a different person because of it, but I don't remember most of these words. There's a lot of layers to, okay, yeah, language is not enough. And yeah, I can't get enough of language.
3: Yeah. So I think using that like thought experiment, if communication was perfect and I understood what you meant and I remembered what you said and you communicated clearly what you tried to communicate, and we just got it first try, that would just be it. Like, there'd be nothing else to say. There would be no curiosity. There'd be no There would be no wonder. It was, this is a thing. This is what was done. And that's it. Like, we're done. We're moving on to the next thing. I feel like eventually we'd run out of things. <laughs> I don't think that that would be a very enjoyable existence at all. Which is not to say that I enjoy forgetting things, but I think that that's part of being human.
0: I'm super glad you asked that question because not only do I find language necessary, right, for our communication, but it's also extremely beautiful, right? And as I was thinking as kind of a way to respond, my thought went to music. A musical note is is just a note. And uh, a series of notes is, is a series of notes. And the difference between one piece of music and another piece of music is the way that those notes are put together and the way that those notes interact. And so if language just points to ideas or experiences that we've had, you putting together a really beautiful piece of language is me saying, wow, I've never heard those notes together right? I've never associated this experience with this experience. And when I when I put those experiences together, well now I've created a new experience. And so that's, I think, for me, yeah, some of the really awesome stuff that can come from language.
1: I totally just thought about the rat from Ratatouille <laughs> explaining my food is amazing. He does the same thing. <laughs> Uh, I watch too many kids' movies. Anyways, um, so for me, I love writing poetry. I love writing in general. But oddly enough, my name is actually Gaelic for poet. So I really love poetry, and I think it's really wonderful. And what I love about language is the fact that you're creating a relationship with that person. That art, kind of like relationship, kind of like love, can only really be made perfect in the observer's eyes, in their senses. When you talk about describing something, when you share an image, an idea, that image is incomplete until the observer takes their interpretation of it and really runs with it. Language is this really beautiful way to communicate and to do your best to communicate something effectively. And for me, there's still something missing. There's still something that the other person has to fill in with their experience, like what you're describing. It's still two notes put together in a way that I've never experienced. For me, I think when I look at poetry, when I look at art, when I look at anything, I think that's why parable, metaphor, things like that, why those are so powerful. I have a A poem that I wrote for my wife and it's this metaphor. The whole thing is this long drug out metaphor where you forget what's happening, you forget what's going on in the story, and you get to the end of this metaphor where you've completely forgotten where you start, and then I reconnect it back to the beginning. And because you've been so engrossed in this idea that feels so disconnected but isn't, when you finally make that journey back to the beginning, the reader on their own is getting to discover what it was like for you to discover something similar. The experiences are two different things. They're completely unrelated, but it's the feeling of that eureka moment, that aha moment, even though it's completely different than what you've discovered, that experience of the eureka moment itself is so powerful and profound. And so that's why for me, I love words and I think they're great. And if anybody can tell... I'm a very verbose person, but I think that language can also be so beautiful in that it gets to make that connection, that intimacy, that relationship in ways that so few things can, because we're not always in the same room together.
0: Okay, so you brought up the idea of metaphor. And it's interesting because I think that the strength of metaphor is the weakness of language. Because the metaphor can mean something different to each one of us sitting here, we can apply it to our own life in ways that make sense to us. Indy, like you were saying, if you were able to explain something in exactly the way you meant it, I might receive it and be like, Yeah, I don't, that doesn't really apply to me. I don't really get, like, that's just, it's not doing it for me. But if I was to take what you said and receive it in a way that makes sense to me, oh, okay, and now all of a sudden that's impactful. I used to think that was a weakness of specifically, like, biblical interpretation. Um, I no longer think that. (laughs) That
3: was so good! Andy's making jazz hands (laughs) (laughs) to fill everybody in.
1: (laughs) I just really love, Ben, what you were saying about, like, when you're pairing ideas together in ways that I wouldn't normally experience. How it's creating notes to you know it's it's putting two notes together in a way i haven't heard when i was talking to a friend of mine who is a transgender woman we were discussing her experience with the church with growing up around evangelicals and as we were discussing her experience the ideas of this specific type of God kept coming up. That language had really ingrained in her mind that God is a male who is very unsafe. And that language kept getting reinforced and reinforced. And so the conversation started with us talking about the feminine nature of God, talking about the divine feminine. And I think as we kept going back and forth, uh, between, you know, masculinity and femininity, my wife had this really profound outburst that to me was so amazing. But she goes, God is transgender. And for my friend who was transgender, she got emotional because it was this really powerful moment of bringing in an idea, allowing something with our words to be birthed into existence that normally doesn't get experienced and so language gave permission not that it was ever needed or should have ever been needed but it allowed for permission to come in to say let's call this something different let's change what these words are let's get rid of this and put this in its place and that, for me, has also been really freeing because when I listen to some of the same language that I hear in church, we are saying two different things. I know for a fact what you're saying is very different than what I'm saying. I might not know exactly what it is, but I know we're on different pages. But I can still enjoy and celebrate in that moment because I'm connecting with those words in a way that I've allowed myself to say, "No, know, this word means different, and I'm okay with that, and it's really enjoyable experience. So I can connect with people, even in our differences.
2: Thank you for telling that story. I think that is such a beautiful example of how words can be tremendously freeing and life giving, which is the point, right? We're. we're We're telling stories so if we can allow someone to feel a little less alone, a little less on the outside, that's what creative language should be doing, right? Is undoing aloneness, reducing suffering for people, creating a sense of connection. That's some of the beautiful things that can come from things like that. I love that creativity and and that, that generosity with language of why would we not give that gift to a fellow human being? What's more loving than that? So... I feel like I want language to be really open and generous and able to be interpreted in any way sometimes. (laughs) Okay? But then at other times, I'm just like, there's no good way of interpreting these words. You know, in religious evangelical context, there are things that are said that I'm not comfortable giving that kind of leniency to to say like oh okay that's your that's your words you're choosing to use as your metaphors it's like I like you know what I'm saying and so I'm almost I'm almost like very inconsistent because I want that kind of like freedom and generosity but at the same time when words get weaponized and when people start being harmed by words then all of a sudden it's like I'm no longer <laughs> open to that right. and I'm just curious for you guys Do you feel that same tension, I guess, is my question.
3: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't have a good term for this category, but um, so you think about like religiously political, politically neutral circumstances where you hang out with people that you may not know very well. You don't know where everybody stands on things. You know, you might, I, I consider myself to be a fairly opinionated person and I'm a nine on the Enneagram. So I'm always on the lookout to make sure that everything's like relatively in harmony even with my own strong opinions. I feel like there are certain words in 2016, if people started an innocent conversation about, say, oh, my favorite team's the 49ers. (laughs) That was in the height of the the Kaepernick kneeling thing. And I remember thinking, this is a gateway to making other people uh, perhaps triggered or talk about something that we are not all on the same page about. And so I think language is very delicate like that, that we probably all talk in ways that make other people uncomfortable and make other people feel threatened and we don't know about it. And I think that one thing that I've been sensitive to over the last few years is the ways that which church culture might make minorities feel, <laughs> feel uncomfortable, the ways that I feel uncomfortable when talking about salvation being the most important mission of the church. Like, I don't think that that's valuable to people who are quote-unquote not saved, (laughs) because theological topics aside, it's probably not on their radar at all. There's probably other things to address before that. That's just not a big deal to them. But that's the way that we have to talk. Like, there's rules with language, and I think that the weaponizing and threatening language, I... I pretty much am, like, in total agreement with your point. Like, I'm not comfortable with it. I don't know how to help other people wake up in the best way possible to that though because for me it was just a long slow process of like slowly realizing that i too probably made people <laughs> feel <laughs> feel feel outcast by the just the way that i was speaking and all i was doing at the time was causing harm but thought i was doing the right thing so i don't really that is something that i notice I am not sure <laughs> how to address it. I hope having conversations like this helps, helps address that, but I don't really know what you would do in an environment like that, though, without totally blowing it up. So I
0: wonder, my, my guess would be that you've never encountered a situation like that with someone who agrees that language is as fluid as you think it is.
2: right that's Hmm. probably true yeah
0: right because if you did then i you know you could have a you have a conversation about it but no you encounter those types of scenarios with people who hey no it says it it says this like so it means this it's very clear to everybody i think those are where the impasses happen Uh, so yeah my first point would be Anyone who weaponizes language like that, my guess is they don't believe that language is as fluid as we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Number two, they're weaponizing language. My guess is you have a pretty good idea of what they mean. You can disagree with it. I don't think you have to bear the weight of like, well, I have to accept it and reinterpret it in a way that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You can just say, oh, yeah, no, I know what you mean. And I disagree with you.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's exactly what I was getting at. I think when I enter into this arena where words become so like, there's almost this surreal nature to like, we're not saying anything. (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And and then like, all of a sudden you're like, but wait, I'm still really uncomfortable with some of the things that are said. Like, I'm pretty certain I'm not saying that. And I've heard, uh, I think it's Liz Gilbert who is saying this, sometimes all you know at first is what it's not. Right. Like you hear something said and you're like, I don't know what it is or what the truth is or what the path is here, but I, it's not that. Right. we just start with that. Like it's not that. So yeah, I think that is what I'm saying is like, yeah.
3: <laughs> so I think going back to the idea of asymptotic fidelity and the limitations of language, I think that's a perfect example of what I think one of the best uses of language, especially when trying to describe god or it's something that is totally surreal is that we have almost a better time explaining what love is not rather than what love is we know what we think god is not like we certainly don't think that god is weaponizing language we certainly don't think that god is using language as a gate to community necessarily like in with with a very 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 selective process We know that those are two attributes that are not godly. But when you actually get down to describe God, we're gonna miss it. The Eastern Church is really good about this. There's this whole strain of what's called negative theology, which is where you're kind of just listing things that you know are not true about God, which I think is really interesting because in the West we have to be so assertive about the things that we think that we know. (laughs) And we're using all of this positive language to describe something in a very like ham-fisted way and i think right now we're kind of in this moment i think we're kind of witnessing the rupturing of of having done that for centuries us included like a lot of our generation is just totally done with church maybe not totally done but personally i kind of feel like done like with church as i've known it but Something like church, I'm totally for. (laughs) Um, I don't know, maybe I'm projecting a lot there, but I really think that I'm not that special (laughs) in the sense that I'm a product of my environment. And I think that the way that we've used language historically has led to that.
1: I think when I try to dissect how we got here, to quote um, William Matthews, certainty became the idol. That we had to know exactly what to do, how to be right, because we had to make it in. And we are sinners in the hands of an angry God who wants to destroy us and who should destroy us. So we better get it right. And so I think with that desire for certainty, that's whenever we started to weaponize language. Because we had to be correct about it. We saw how language has so much power because of its fluidity, but we forgot that we're speaking two different languages, right? When I'm somebody who's experienced something transcendental, or I say I've encountered God, there is not a way, going back to the study that I mentioned with my wife, there's not a way for me to put into language that experience in an adequate manner. So when I'm talking to somebody And they're thinking about it, language is being processed in the more logical centers of our brain, whereas this is in an experiential, it's a sensory experience that we had, whether it be just in our mind, whether it be in our bodies as well, we had a very sensory experience. So we're speaking in two different languages. And so for the people who, to kind of take it full circle, who've experienced mysticism or experienced god or experienced the transcendental nature of the universe or just had those experiences they see why language is so fluid and so failing but for me i look at what do we do to go back to your question what do we do in these situations right you you can't just be like oh this is cool you know we're we're saying different things but it's okay and i agree i think you're right for me the filter that I apply it to is less about what the words are and more about what the experience they create is. That I think is a really easy one to say, I know what that is. I know what that looks like. I know what that means and whether I'm exactly right, I'm close enough. And for me, it's crazy because as I've gone through this journey, words that I've read in the Bible have taken on a totally not different but more profound meaning. So when I look at it I get to this place where I think of what is re- religion that God finds pleasing. It's one that seeks out injustice, that takes up the cause of the widows and the orphan, that goes and answers the cry of affliction. So when our language isn't creating those experiences, we know it's bad. And from a moral standpoint We have to do something about it. Language is so powerful because of how it dictates our experience. And so I believe absolutely that one, as a human being, we have a moral responsibility when we see what language isn't doing. You know, we see that it's not creating a loving space. It's not creating something safe and healthy. And I think, again, going back to my friend's experience and the experience that I've had, that at the hands of that toxic language, It's done some real damage because as I experience those words, that's exactly what it is. It's an experience. I think we have to have this moral standpoint of like when we see that something is out there that's toxic or harmful, let's challenge it. With that said, also being gentle in how we use that language.
2: Not creating more harm. I'm right.
1: Sorry. You know, I'm not I'm not responding to the brick you threw by throwing you know, by throwing more bricks.
3: I don't think that you can weaponize language from a place of security with your identity. Anytime that I see weaponized language used, it seems like it's coming from a place of fear. It's coming from a place that needs To have control. I think in a lot of cases if the party doing so were to challenge some of the assumptions that what they're doing comes from, I think they would find that it comes from some kind of insecurity. Like I think about the need for salvation. That's important because we're told that we're not saved and there's gonna be something very bad that happens to us if we're not behaving correctly. But if you're truly at peace, I I think with your existence, I don't think that that's really a concern. I think that that (laughs) leads to a a gentleness that, ironically, salvation was talking about the entire time.
1: Just kind of continuing off of what Will was saying about the place of security, man, I think that's just so beautiful and so golden because as you get to it, you've arrived at the place that salvation was probably always discussing like that that tranquility that calmness and that's something that kills me every time is that we talk about the fruit of the spirit like it's the first step but if you look at the name it's the fruit the fruit happens last in a tree's life like it's the byproduct it's never the things that you do on the way like it's the byproduct of serenity, tranquility. I've discovered that I'm able to give those things so much more, the more that I'm poured into and the more that I'm filled up. And all of a sudden I'm realizing that's everywhere in the Psalms, everywhere in the New Testament. And like all the imagery is about an overflow. And it's never about like, oh, you have to do all these things right to then get to this place. It's like, no, it's once you've, received love, once you've filled yourself with love, once you've filled yourself with grace, compassion, acceptance, then from that overflow, you can give to those other things. And I, man, I just, I love that, dude. We miss the point completely because we're focused on the language and not on what the language is telling us.
3: Mm-hmm. That was something that always kind of like, Devin, what you're describing, like the using the fruit as a byproduct. That was something that I really started thinking about when I was in college. Maybe not that specifically, but the idea of people who I saw doing very godly things, what I was thinking at the time, that weren't Christians, that caused a severe problem for my system of thought. <laughs> because when you get down to it, like the only difference between me and them... Was that one? They were probably looking more like Jesus than I was at the time. I was just saying the right words, and if the <laughs> and if the goal isn't words the entire time, like when you're looking at the actions and the mission of Jesus, if saying the words isn't isn't the goal, which it seems to not be, <laughs> well, like what's the point of using weird words that make people feel estranged and out of place in order to convince them that they're should be doing the right thing. Like it just, it, it just all, for me, it kind of broke down at that point.
1: I love that because Ben, you brought up a point about where the word belief comes from. And I think that that hits on a lot of what Will's describing. Could you share that wisdom you dropped on me?
0: Yeah, we mentioned uh last episode. It was Hillary McBride that the entomology behind the word belief is by life. So belief isn't something you choose to adhere to. It's really what is displayed in your actions.
1: So how are you guys using your experience of your actions to then formulate how you speak about things? Because I think what Will was describing is a really similar thing to what I think at one point we all went through, right? Where our words were the right thing but that didn't actually illuminate that by-life aspect of belief. For me, because I know this is kind of a weird question, for me what that looks like is I recently was fasting and I asked myself at the end of it, do I still believe in intercessory prayer? Because my lifestyle lately doesn't really show it. I'm not doing that like I used to. And if this is what my lifestyle is, maybe I need to change how I talk about these things, because maybe they don't line up anymore how I thought they did. And so how have you, or how are you, or um, what are some ways that based on your experience, you've used your experience to then dictate how you used language to make the two things line up more
0: appropriately? And just as you're talking and you're you mentioned like the intercessory prayer thing that you maybe don't believe anymore or you don't believe that it works necessarily the way you thought it did or maybe you believed it now you don't. But it sounds like you want to believe, which is something that I think about a lot, specifically that X-Files poster with the, that just says, I want to believe. I feel like there's a lot of that that happens in my life where there's there's just a lot that I look at and I don't I don't see that belief reflected in my actions but it's something I definitely want to strive towards something I want to believe I want it to show in my actions because then obviously I believe it and maybe I'm not there yet for some of these things and that's okay I'm working towards it but yeah I want to believe <laughs>
1: Does that show up in healthy ways or unhealthy ways or a combination of the both? Or I
0: guess I've never thought of it in that sort of way. But I like to think it shows up in healthy ways because I see those as areas for potential growth. Uh, but I suppose there's probably times where I kind of kick myself over not doing something I wish I did
3: the question was, like, does that come out in unhealthy ways or in unhealthy ways? I think about it, it's probably comes out, for, I think for me, probably both. I think there have been unhealthy ways that I have dealt with my own shift in belief and there have been healthy ways as well. I think that it's been good and bad and I don't think that it... I think ultimately I think I'm healthier for, like, wrestling through some of that stuff, but I don't think that anybody could be expected to deal with it, with any of that in a healthy way all the time not that i want it to be this way but i think it has i think it has to be both unhealthy and health just because we're limited people
0: <laughs> yeah sometimes the only way to like get to healthy is through unhealthy sometimes the only way to learn how to do it right is to do it wrong first okay. falling up
2: Um As soon as you ask that question, I'm like I start getting pretty choked up, Devin, and I'm trying to I'm still trying to put words around why that is. And I think I think it's because during some of the during some of the most difficult parts of my processing, of my transitioning away from a lot of the things I used to believe, I was a worship leader, so it was kind of expected of me to say things out loud. And so I spent an intense amount of time trying to find things I could say and really mean. Which was like a really emotionally stressful experience. Cause like being genuine is is like everything to me. I don't ever wanna, you know, just be saying something just to say it. So that was like a really building tension for a long time of how do I have this experience that I'm having and own the fact that I'm in an incredible amount of pain and that the words I'm being asked to sing, I think that was actually a tipping point at at certain points, was there's just songs that still had language in it that I just couldn't sing anymore because it was really painful and so I think for me like there's like a period of time where I I didn't say a lot about it like I just started getting quieter and quieter after I think after I had left that position there was just like a period of time where I just started removing my obligation to say anything at all and I think I don't know, I don't know if that, that was just part of my process, I don't even know what to say about that, but that's what it was like, was that it took a while for me to even want to put any words around it, because I was tired of that pressure, you know? I, I will say, having people I can watch, who I can see their health and their connection and their love, and I hear the words that they're using, like, I've always really respected Rob Bell a lot. So, you know, when I hear his language that he uses on his podcast, I'd borrow it because I'd feel safe. I'd be like, okay, you know, we've had this we've had this trust relationship, even though you've no idea who I am, for a number of years now, where I know that you're not saying something just because it's the thing we're supposed to say. You know, there's a level of sincerity there. And he, you know, it's generous, it's inclusive. It's all the things I really value now. So I borrow it and I try it and then some things fit and I keep it. So it's kind of like this, uh, you know, I don't think it's anything really original. It's just trying to find something I can adopt and feel comfortable with, Yeah.
3: Hmm. That sounds hard.
1: Yeah, thank you for sharing. I think the last piece that I really want to touch base on, and we've all talked about it, is uh, something called something called a somatic experience. So, in and this is something I learned from my wife. Whenever she was when she was going to grad school, I would edit her papers because I'm a writer and language is my thing. So I would help her. She's a dancer, a mover. That's why she has a master's in dance movement therapy. So she would like ask for my help and the, she hates it now because every now and again when we'll get into like an argument or a fight I'll quote her papers. <laughs> And she doesn't like that. (laughs) It's never, (laughs) yeah, yeah. It's not always the best way to solve a fight by throwing someone's words back at them, um, as I've discovered in my years of marriage. Uh, But one of the things that I learned from her was about the power of the somatic experience, that as we take our external life and we begin to think about it, sit in it, and let those words, those experiences marinate, that they start to appear in our body and they start to appear in how in our countenance and how we talk how we interact how we treat each other how we treat ourselves and so for me that's part of why i've been trying to focus more on let me drop into my body like i've learned from my wife let me listen and feel and experience what's happening internally and what are those things telling me so then i can use language in an appropriate way. You know, today I was short with my kids. I was a bit of a to my wife. Um, And whenever, you know, I had... 15 20 minutes by myself. I sat there, I meditated. I uh, dropped into my body and I realized like I'm carrying around this frustration, I'm carrying around this exhaustion and that's spilling into every area of my life and I'm using hurtful language because I'm just I'm tired. I am grouchy. Uh, I've had a really long day with not a lot of sleepful nights lately. And so I had to go back and literally went back into my kids' room. I mean, they weren't even close to asleep, so like I didn't have to wake them up. Uh, but I spent time with my kids, and I apologized to them. I was like, you know, I apologize for being grumpy. I apologize uh, for using, you know, mean words when we were talking. And so, the posture that I had with them had to be completely different because i needed to feel what i was feeling to say what was going on in my body acknowledge it and realize that while i was saying i love you i was also being an like two seconds before and so how we carry things how our body externalizes what's happening internally is really important and i've found that when we can sit in our experience the language that we can then use is so much, for me personally, so much healthier, so much better. So again, when I went back into their room and I just picked them up and I just told them, I was like, "I'm, daddy is so sorry, um, you know, I, I apologize for everything. And it was really beautiful because, it was really beautiful because when I apologized to my daughter, who's not even two yet, she goes, it's okay, daddy. I love you too. And it was just so huge to see like how powerful language is already becoming. And when we can contextualize it in like safe and loving ways, how it can be this really healing and beautiful thing, um, which for me ties into the nature of like God's goodness. And so it was just a really beautiful moment where where I got to experience my daughter's forgiveness in a way that I I definitely didn't deserve. Um, But it had to start with dropping into my body. It had to start with my somatic experience. And then from there I could navigate my way back out because my belief that I was saying wasn't matching my belief that my lifestyle was showing. And so I had to get those two to line up.
0: Yeah, words are limiting and imperfect, but they're still really important and they matter. Thanks everyone for hanging out for another episode. If you want to connect, you can email hosts at LonelyMountainMystics.com, go to the website, or check us out on Twitter. We really would love to hear from you. If you want to support the show, you can go to the website and click on Become a Patron. Or head straight over to Patreon.com and look for Lonely Mountain Mystics. A big thank you to those who have become patrons. Your support really does make the show better. That's it for this episode. So on behalf of Will, Andy, Devin, and myself, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.